Please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Peter, where we are beginning a new sermon series through a new book. So have you ever stopped to think about how powerful a tool the Internet is? There are so many wonderful things that the Internet provides. Unfortunately, there are probably just as many terrible things that the Internet provides. One terrible thing which the Internet internet has led to is creating millions of experts on any given topic. Knowledge is power, as they say, and so we as greedy, idolatrous, And fallen people want all that control and power we can possibly get. When I'm sick, I don't know any, or when I'm sick, rather, the doctor doesn't know anything. I looked up my symptoms on WebMD. I already know that my runny nose is really the bubonic plague. I looked it up. These historians are wrong about this event. I looked it up on Wikipedia yesterday. Ah, you have a PhD in nuclear energy? Well, cool. I watched some YouTube videos on that last night. So I guess that makes us equals. Well, I am, of course, being facetious and all these things. Most of us are never truly going to be an expert on anything and definitely not a plethora of things. And yet we want to have that knowledge and that control. We want to be the ones making the plans and knowing what's going on in the world. But the problem is that we are very finite very finite beings with fallen reasoning. We love our control and we want to stick to our plans. But the problem is that our plans fall apart very quickly because, well, honestly, we don't know that much. And furthermore, we have no power to ensure our plans. And thank God for that. Because if all our plans did work out, this world would be a far bigger mess than it already is. And because of that, we can praise the Lord because He has a sovereign plan that will always be for the best of all his children. Even when we cannot understand at the time the things that are going on. In the end, God's plans are always for the best. So because God is sovereign, we must trust his plan. So that's the main point I want you to get from this sermon. Because God is sovereign, we must trust his plan. So with that, let's read a very long section, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray again and ask for God's help. Lord God, we thank you that through Christ, grace and peace have indeed been multiplied to your people. And this morning we pray that as we look at this this text, that you would again multiply grace and peace to us, that we would have a greater, deeper understanding of who you are, of who Christ is, and who we are in him. We ask this in his name. Amen. So first, as we're going into a new letter, we do need to do a few background things here. And first thing we see is that This letter was written by the Apostle Peter. Now, the apostolic office was a unique position in the early church. There are only 12 men initially whom Jesus Jesus chose to be apostles. Now, of course, Judas betrayed Jesus and he fell. 
But then he was replaced by the apostle Matthias in Acts 1. Well, then Paul was made an apostle by Christ later. But even Paul, in addition to the other apostles, physically saw Christ and was selected specifically by him. That's what it takes to be an apostle. Apostles had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus' earthly ministry, his death, and his resurrection. And Peter was a leader even among the twelve. He was part of that inner circle along with James and John. He was really the, the spokesperson of the apostles, and in many ways he was their leader. Even though Peter fell and rejected Christ, he was also restored by Christ. And in that restoration, Jesus charged Peter to feed his sheep. Multiple times, Jesus said, feed my sheep. So as an apostle, Peter's words in this book are God's special revelation for his church. And by these words, Peter not only fed Jesus' sheep then, but he continues to feed the church now. He continues to feed us. So God can use Peter's letter from 2,000 years ago now for our good, to feed us. Well, somewhat debated topic, now that we've talked about the author, is the audience of 1 Peter. Some argue that Peter is speaking predominantly to Jews. But there are a lot of verses that refer to a pagan background and sins that are associated with pagan backgrounds. Therefore, it's really unlikely that this is just to the Jews. It's probably a largely Gentile audience. But it also uses many Old Testament terms to refer to them, which is going to be very interesting as we go through. So in Peter's mind... The church is the true Israel of God, whether Jew or Gentile. God's people are his people throughout the ages. And God's people at this point were scattered all throughout the ancient world. All of the locations listed in verse 1 are regions in modern day Turkey. So first Peter would have sent this letter in the hands of a courier who would have traveled through these regions and read the letter to all these various churches. Peter's letter was meant to be read in all these churches because it very much applied to everyone in all of these different churches. And as as it applied to them, so it applies to us today. Peter knew what Christians face as they live in an unbelieving world. Christians have suffered for their faith throughout history. We are persecuted, we are excluded, and really we're excluded from worldly society in a way that makes us outsiders. Why is this the case? Why are we excluded from the world? Why are we set apart from the world in the sense that they are, that they hate us? Why is this? Well, a major theme of 1 Peter is going to pick up on that question. It's going to address why we are exiles and sojourners in this world. The world is not our home, and yet we live here for now. Heaven is our home, but we are not yet physically there. We are part-timers and wanderers in this world, on this earth. But what does that make us? Our text for this morning is going to answer that question. Why are we exiles in the world? Is it a mistake that we're exiles? Are we suffering for nothing? What does Peter have to teach us about this? So we're going to look at three points this morning now. And each point is focusing on a person of the Trinity, because that's how Peter walks through these verses. So first, the first point is the Father's foreknowledge. That's what we're going to address first, the Father's foreknowledge. In verse 1, Peter refers to us as elect exiles. Now, if you're strictly thinking at a word level, or excuse me, in worldly terms, it's a bit of a contradiction 
How can you be both chosen or elect and yet also be in exile, which is really to be rejected? To be in exile is to be without a home and to be rejected by your own people. How then can you be both in exile and also chosen? Well, the early church knew what it was like to be rejected. Gentile believers would have been disowned by their families, betrayed by their friends, and considered immoral threats by their neighbors. These believers weren't going from nothing to something. In the minds of their neighbors, they had abandoned the true gods and were immoral apostates that could bring trouble on all of them. These Christians are going to make the gods angry with us. And so the total rejection of these saints by the world made them exiles in their own hometowns, even in their own families. But what made them truly offensive to the locals was that they had been chosen by God to be his own. They were exiles precisely because God had elected them for salvation. To be a friend of God is to be an enemy of the world. Therefore, the Christian is chosen by God, but in exile on earth. The unbeliever is rejected by God and is right at home in the world. So while a seeming contradiction in terms, in reality, the Christian has to be, he must be an elect exile. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world to his glory, not for anything in us, but according to his will. He chooses people out of the world and brings them into his church. And this is the same thing that Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God elected us to be his own, which at the same time removed our citizenship from the earth. So that takes us to the concept of foreknowledge. God foreknew that we would be exiles and sojourners in this world. Now, that doesn't mean he looked into the future to see who would accept him and believe and who wouldn't. It's not just knowing what will happen, but enabling what he wills to come into being. To foreknow is also to choose. We believe God because he, or we believe because God foreknew us and ordained that we would believe. The word elect is used 17 times in the New Testament for those who have been chosen to inherit eternal life. And so God foreknew and predestined us to be his children for eternal life. It was his sovereign choice that we would be regenerated and believe. Wayne Grudem, who's a commentator, explains the Father's foreknowledge as God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. I love that description. God's fatherly care for you before the world was made. Another commentator named Sam Storms, his definition is a little longer, but it says this. To foreknow is to forelove. That God foreknew us means that he set his gracious and merciful regard upon us that he knew us from eternity past with a sovereign and distinguishing delight. God's foreknowledge is an active, creative work of divine love. It is not a prevision that merely recognizes a difference between those who believe and those who do not believe. God's foreknowledge creates that difference. And I'll say in quote there because that was a long quote. 
So God didn't just foreknow and ordain our salvation. He also foreknew and ordained all the circumstances in our lives. God was not shocked that his children were rejected by the world for their faith. It was not a surprise to the Lord when the world persecuted his saints. It is no accident or oversight that believers undergo trials in their lives. God perfectly knew his saints in these regions and that they needed to hear this message written by Peter. He planned who would hear the words of this letter, just like he planned where they would be. Paul, speaking to unbelievers in the city of Athens, said, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one nation, every one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Having determined and allotted the periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. That's from Acts 17. So looking at that, consider this. God knows and ordained even the property boundary markers for every landowner to ever exist. There is nothing that comes to pass in this world that was not ordained and planned by God before the foundation of the earth. God planned where the exiles in Asia Minor would live, what they would go through, and how he would redeem and sanctify them. There is nothing in all creation that escapes his governing hand, be it leaders, nations, or even the persecution of his people. God planned where the exiles in, or excuse me, all those things that God has planned all that, that's something we often forget. But the truth is that nothing in our lives falls outside of God's sovereignty. Everything in our lives is a part of God's plan. Now, that doesn't mean that sin is sent by God, but it's definitely something that God is sovereign over and he uses in his planning. As Romans 8.28 tells us, all things work together for the good of those who love God. Notice that it doesn't say all good things. It says all things. All things, good and evil, are used by God for our ultimate good. That's a shocking thing to stop and to contemplate. But it's also something that's crucial for us to grasp. That means that no matter what your current situation is, it's part of God's plan. If you deal with chronic physical pain, it's part of God's plan for your good. If you are dealing with frequent temptation, God has ordained that struggle for you. If you feel like you're in an impossible situation, God has called you to this point. If you feel like your situation is a mistake, it's not. So often our thinking is that if circumstances were just different, then everything would be better. If it wasn't for X, Y, and Z, then I would be holier. My friendships would be better. My marriage would be perfect. My joy would be complete if these circumstances just changed or went away. We must learn how to self-examine our hearts and see where we have these kinds of thoughts. As I can tell you from experience, they pop up often. God has ordained everything in our lives, even the very worst, even the most difficult things we go through. We, too, are exiles in this world, just as the sojourners in Asia Minor were. God has called us to be elect exiles here and now in whatever situation he has placed us in. So really, the question for us now is, why does he give his children difficult things 
Well, ultimately, the answer is for his own glory. But how does it glorify God that he foreknew our situation as elect exiles? Well, let's look at the second point, and that's the sanctification of the Spirit. In this passage, there are really three answers to that question of why God gives his children difficult things. And the first of these answers is in the beginning of verse 2. Why did God foreknow our situation as elect exiles? For the purpose of our sanctification in the Spirit. That's the first answer. The Holy Spirit indwells us and applies the work of redemption to us. He is the one who takes the work of Christ and applies it to our hearts. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we are sealed with his Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. You cannot be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and fail to persevere to the end. You cannot be sealed by the Holy Spirit and not make it to glory. The Spirit is the one who has set us apart for the Lord. We're going to see that holiness is a major theme that Peter is going to address in this book. God is holy, therefore you, his people, must be holy. And he sanctifies us and makes us holy by sealing us with his spirit. We are a marked people. The Lord's name is stamped upon our hearts and it is more permanent than any tattoo could ever be. It is a declaration by God that he is your father and that you are his child. And as such, it is irrevocable and unchangeable. Just as God is eternally unchanging and supremely perfect. And so we are set apart as holy priests to the Lord. But there's another element as well. Why couldn't God do all this sealing stuff and not put us through trials? Well, he uses those trials to grow us, to sanctify us. The Spirit doesn't seal us and then become inactive until we die. He seals us and then continually works in our still imperfect hearts to create stronger faith, Love, joy, hope, peace. You can go through all the fruits of the Spirit there. He roots out the sin in our hearts and he makes us more and more holy. This is where I have to remember who we are as mankind because man was made in the image of God. But because of Adam's sin, he fell along with all of mankind. And that image was marred and disfigured. The mirror that once perfectly reflected the holy God in his glory was dimmed, cracked, though it was not entirely destroyed. Well, the Spirit uses the difficulties in our lives to continue the work of renewing that mirror so that it properly reflects and images the Lord to the world around us. He wants us to be whole and complete image bearers for him. And he accomplishes this by pointing us to Christ during every trial so that we begin to image Christ more and more clearly to those around us. And therefore, that which was disfigured, often beyond recognition, is made beautiful again after our Lord. So I'm convinced that the most difficult thing in the Christian life is to look at these difficult things and to accept that these circumstances in which you find yourself are no mistake. It's difficult instead to acknowledge that the Lord has called you to exactly where you are right now. And in that moment of recognition, to pray to him and say, Lord, I submit to the situation in which you have placed me. And to say, please teach me to be content where I am, that I might glorify your name and become more like Christ through these struggles. Wishing for things to just be different is ultimately really a denial 
of God's providence in your life. Remember Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God. Not just the things we like, but all things. So if God has called you to it, then he has given you the grace to endure it. When you are tempted seemingly beyond what you can bear, he also provides a way of escape. God never leads us where his grace will not richly and abundantly follow. Consider Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. So the Lord not only calls us to difficult places, he expressly tells us that he is going to. What we need in order to endure is to know that he will also be with us through that trial and supply us with the grace that we need. He anoints us. He makes our cup overflow with his grace exactly when we need it. So all we're really called to do is walk humbly with our God and trust that his plans are far better than ours could ever be. And in so doing, when we do that, we are submitting our hearts to Christ. But we may also submit to Christ knowing that he too suffered in the body. There is nothing that we can suffer that Christ does not understand as our high priest. He suffered in the flesh. And if our king could suffer as he did, we should expect to be able to suffer too. But we can do so with peace and with even joy. Because our suffering will be efficacious, just as Christ's was. Now, our suffering cannot atone or appease the wrath of God, but we can suffer for the glory of God, knowing that no tears will ever be forgotten by him. Psalm 56 says that God keeps our tears in a bottle and that he remembers them. Psalm 116 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If your death is precious in the eyes of God, how much more does he value your life? So we may not know all the reasons why God brings trials and suffering into our lives, at least in this life. But we may know for certain that they are all for our sanctification and for his glory. And that's the first answer to why God allows his people to suffer. So let's turn to the final point and the other two answers in this passage. So point three. The obedience and sprinkling of Christ's blood. Obedience and sprinkling of Christ's blood. So before we can give the second answer, we need to look at the role of the sun in this passage. In Greek, or in the Greek language with the original text, Jesus' blood is actually the main subject of this verse. So literally, it's something like this. Unto the obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. So there's two parts, obedience and sprinkling. So first, let's look at obedience to the blood. So because we have been foreknown by the Father and sanctified by the Spirit, we are called to obedience to Christ's blood. We are called to believe in and live out the beauty of the atonement in our lives. As we believe in Christ, we obey the gospel and we receive the gift of salvation through Christ's blood. And this is really no different than saying that you must live your lives according to the faith. You are a Christian, and so you must live your life as if you are a Christian. We must hold to our faith unswervingly and unashamedly before the world and before one another. 
The world will not honor you for living a godly life. Quite the opposite. They will hate you on account of your faith. But we have to hold fast to the faith we received. And we're likely going to be persecuted for that, but it is what we are called to. And that brings us to the second answer to the question we've been asking. Why does God bring his people through difficult waters? Well, this is another element to our sanctification. Through difficulties, God teaches us obedience. So as we are tested and tried in our life, our obedience grows stronger and more resolute. And it is in this way God trains us in good works in even the most unlikely situations. This is how God trains us to be a people, as Titus 2.14 says, who are zealous for good works. And so the second answer to the question is that God is teaching us how to obey and live worthily of the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, to give the third answer to the question of why Christians suffer, we need to look at the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. I'll go ahead and tell you, this phrase led me on an in-depth study of sprinkling in the Bible. As I try to determine, how is Peter using this phrase? What does he mean by sprinkled here? Well, First Peter includes constant references to the Old Testament, many of which cannot be properly understood or appreciated unless you know the Old Testament background. Sprinkling occurs throughout the Old Testament, and so it can be difficult to pinpoint exactly which place Peter is referring to. So the question is how Peter uses the Old Testament concept of sprinkling here in the New Testament. Now, it may be helpful to know that Peter is not the only one to carry on this imagery of sprinkling in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, which we're going to look at several examples in a moment, uses this concept of sprinkling throughout. Knowing that, I sorted through many passages in search of what I was looking for or of what Peter's referencing. So in the Pentateuch, blood is sprinkled on the altar to consecrate it. The sprinkling of blood is used in burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, feasts, and the Day of Atonement. It's used all over the place. Then you go to sprinkling with water and oil. These are used in various cleansing ceremonies and the dedication of priests for service. So the Old Testament has a rich history associated with the sprinkling of both water and blood. So as I looked at the context of 1 Peter, and I searched through Old Testament passages, things began to narrow down some. So rather than take you through the 20-some passages I searched through, I'll, I'll leave you with five. Five, I think, will be helpful for us as we go through this book. So first, let's go to Ezekiel, and then the rest will be in Hebrews. But first, Ezekiel 36... So Ezekiel 36, and we'll start in verse 23. Just a moment. All right, Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 23. And I will vindicate, sorry, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your idols and uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the direct fulfillment of that passage was in the return of the exiled Jews back to the land of Israel. But that return, while great, did not really fulfill all those grand promises. There was still something missing in that restoration. And that's because the true fulfillment of that picture was to be realized later on. And we see some of that fulfillment in Acts 2 at Pentecost, when God poured out His Spirit on the first Christians at Jerusalem. We see the next level of fulfillment at the end of Acts 10, when the Spirit falls on the Gentile believers. So part of what I think we're meant to understand here is that the sprinkling, excuse me, part of what I think we're to understand from the sprinkling is that these Gentiles have been brought into the covenant by God and have received His Spirit. They're part of God's people now. God has called them out of the nations. He has poured out His grace on them and all because they have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. They are now His elect exiles awaiting their blessed hope of glory. Now, turn to the book of Hebrews for the rest of the passages. So start in Hebrews chapter 9. So Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So if the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer mixed with water could in some way sanctify, how much more will the sprinkled blood of Christ efficaciously purify and redeem us. Really, it's a, great, a lesser to greater argument there. The blood of Christ has been sprinkled into our hearts, cleansing us and purifying us. Now go to verse 17 of Hebrews 9. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." So from that, what I want you to understand is that God relates to us through covenant. The only way which we can go to the Lord for forgiveness is while in a covenant relationship with Christ. And this passage, is, it's going way back and referencing Exodus 24, where Moses inaugurated the covenant with Israel by blood. For us to be in a relationship with God, our sin and our guilt must be purified. And the only way to remove that guilt and that sin, that stain that's on us, is through the blood of sacrifice. Otherwise, it is our blood that
that must flow in judgment. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Christ's blood being sprinkled on us secured our covenant with God. Now I go to Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So how is it that sinful creatures like us could enter into the presence of an almighty and a holy God? And how on earth could we do so with confidence? We may only approach God's throne because Christ has opened a way for us through his blood. And because of the finished work of Christ, we can come to the very throne of God with confidence and assurance rather than awaiting judgment and death. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean by Christ's blood. And then the last reference is in Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 22. So Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood of Christ is the entryway into the new covenant. We, even now as we worship, are in the presence of the living God. When we sing the doxology and we say, Praise Him above ye heavenly host." We are calling on angels and saints in glory to give praise to God with us. We are joining in on that never-ending worship of the infinite God. And this is possible because we have a mediator who spilled his own blood to pay the price that we never could. And that sprinkled blood speaks forever in the ears of the Father, innocent. The blood of Christ declares that you are his forever. This is exactly what the sacrament of baptism proclaims. Baptism is not a declaration by man of his intent. If baptism was just up to us, if it was just our word, then in the end it's a worthless sacrament. Baptism is a declaration by God that salvation in Christ and all the promises therein have been extended to all within his church. So just as the water sprinkled in baptism represents the cleansing of God, and the giving of His Spirit. So the sprinkling of the blood of Christ applied to you by the Holy Spirit guarantees your redemption and your access to the throne of grace. Baptism is just a visible sign and seal of what the blood of Christ has already accomplished for His people. So let's connect this back to our discussion or to our question. What does sprinkling have to do with the question of why God calls his people to difficult places. Christ suffered so that we might be washed clean and live. He is the new model, the true Adam, and our Lord. And just as he had to suffer in order to redeem us, so he calls us to suffer 
so that he might enlarge his kingdom, make known his glory, and conform us evermore into his likeness. He wants us to shine like the Son of God. And that doesn't mean taking on deity ourselves, rather reflecting the deity of Christ to others, reflecting the King to others. So let's conclude. We began with the proposition that because God is sovereign, we must trust His plan. We then really walk through the Trinity's role in our salvation. And what we see is that all three persons are active, not only in our initial redemption, but in our ongoing sanctification and our eventual glorification. The Father foreknew us. The Spirit sanctifies us. And the Son calls us to obedience and sprinkles us with His cleansing blood. Our very identities as saints of God are entirely dependent upon the salvific work of the triune God. And because we are called out of the world and yet still live in it, we are elect exiles here. And that means that we are called to and we are going to go through suffering and trials in our lives. God graciously calls us into difficult things to purify our hearts and minds and to make us more and more like Christ. So we can live confidently, even though we know we will face hardship for two reasons. First, God is sovereign and he has called us to every trial we face for our good. And second, the Lord will give us the grace we need to endure it when he brings that trial to us. But this is the challenge. If you are not in Christ, if he is not your Lord and King, then you have no confidence about coming trials. You have no source of strength to run to. God does not promise to give grace to those who dishonor and who reject him. Every trial you face is a call to go to the God who can pour out his grace on you and help you. Going to him in faith and repentance is the means by which Christ can pour out his grace and his peace upon you richly. We have a good God who wants to richly bless his people. He desires to bless you richly with Jesus. That's why Peter can say to you, God's saints, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We have an infinite God who loves to bless his people richly through his son. His grace and his peace are never ending. And so his grace and peace to you in Christ will have no end. Trust in God, for he is your hope and your salvation and ever present help in times of trouble. And so I can call on you, God's saints, to praise the Lord, you elect exiles. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign. That you have made us elect exiles. That you have plucked us out of a world that is soon destined for destruction. You have set us into new life. You set us into new life so that we might also go and witness and minister and share the gospel with others who are on a dangerous track to destruction. Lord, you have made us anew, you have brought us new life, and in that we rejoice. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for your work in our salvation. Thank you for new life. And help us to consider that even as we go now to your table. Pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.